Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. And now we get to get to the good part. Uh, we're thrilled to present Mark Z. Danielewski tonight. Uh, his first novel, House of Leaves, is the only book that I know of at Skylight that has two competing staff recommendations. One of them is mine. Um, I love hand-selling that book and also Only Revolutions because you give it to a customer and they look, you know, they like open it up and they're like, oh, like there, that's different. Uh, so it's it's a lot of fun. We're just a huge fan here. Um, the 50-Year Sword is his latest, and we're so excited to have him here tonight to share it with us. We're the last stop on a long tour, so please help me welcome him home and welcome him to Skylight, Mark Z. Danielewski. Hello. How is everyone tonight? It's nice to be at Skylight. Do a lot of you come to Skylight? Franny was upstairs keeping me company. I don't know if you know Franny. Awesome cat. Pop killer. I've gotten some very cool uh, cat t-shirts there. <laughs> so it's, it's like coming home. And here we are with this strange little book. I like the introduction. Oh, what is that? I hear that a lot. Um, does anyone have any questions, just to start off a different way? Yeah. Oh, the whole grumpy cat dilemma. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was kind of partial to Henri when he came out, and uh, and then I, you know, I began to to watch part one, part two, watch The Hunting. Uh, then my friend Christopher O'Reilly, who was on tour with me. You know, he got a Henri t-shirt. And, you know, we could sort of reflect on our days, you know, when we were in college reading Camus and, you know, Nouvelle Vague and all those films. And it seemed like the perfect cat for, for us and a few people. And then the ascendancy of Grumpy Cat. And then suddenly I found myself to be an owner of a Grumpy Cat t-shirt. And, uh, 
and I don't know. I think it's a. I think it's a. It's a war. It's kind of there's a red state there and a blue state, and uh, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't decided who who's going to win yet. But it's it's serious. Yes. Oh, that kind of off. Okay. <laughs> the question is starting off is most successful writers are off. They have. You don't have to talk about your own personal. <laughs> is, is that the question? Is how am I off? <laughs> I don't know. What is, what is, what is, what's, what's wearing a lot of cat t-shirts symptomatic of, you know? What's reading, you know, an enormous amount of serious literature and, and really kind of getting excited about the grumpy cat, Henri, you know? What am I really not talking about? Uh, I don't know if that's true. I, I think... I think writing is an expression of... I think the writing that resonates is is because it's it's limpid, it, it's lucid, it, it, it peers at, at, at those things that people recognize in themselves, you know, and so, you know, a lot of, a lot of the disorders, let's face it, are spectral. So maybe there is someone who is mad with depression, whether it's Sylvia Plath, but that doesn't mean that, that her anguish can't be found in ourselves to certain degrees, and at certain moments, maybe even just as intense. So I think the question is, especially when it comes to your book, is, you know, how clear are you about what you're relating and what you're running from? I'm willing to say I'm off. All right. You don't have to say you are. Oh, I think I just said I was off. <laughs> yes. The question is about how to negotiate story and structure. It's the most vital aspect of what I do. So it's, uh, it's an important question and I always, I like, I like talking about it because I don't, I think in, in some ways it does sort of shed light on, on how to how to approach that dilemma. If you, get, um, if you get too lost in structure, then y y you give up, you give up that, that creative surprise you know, that happens. And if you're purely following along you know, an instinctual path, which is also a possibility, then you lose sight of, of the natural repetitions and the natural themes that begin to emerge. Uh, for the 50-year sword, uh, over the last three years I did this staged reading at, at Red Cat in the, in the Disney Center. And for two years uh, there was a beautiful shadow show put on by this artist named Christine Marie. And the last one was not about shadows because I realized that the book 
itself was never about shadows. So even though I'd spent a great deal of time structuring its vocabulary, I knew that it had to have a certain set of vocabulary. Uh, the, the importance of thread was, weirdly enough, kind of invisible to me. You know, there were so many elements that were going on in it that I had kind of misplaced the amount of work that had gone into the vocabulary of stitching, for example. So, if I hadn't taken that moment to step back and look at structurally what I was doing, then I wouldn't have come to see more clearly the kind of illustrative work that was necessary and the, and, and, and the kind of typography that was necessary for the final version. Um, in, in Only Revolutions, that was also the case. It was highly structured, and yet at the same time, that was sort of the fun, is how do, you, how do you find a creative life with that many rules surrounding you? And that became really the quest for Sam and Haley, is how do, how do they get outside of the chains of, of, of law? You know, how do they become their own justice? How do they get away from, um, from the historical necessities that surround them? And that was also true with House of Leaves. At what point does, does, does a, a footnote sort of echo or, or, or play kind of a, a contrapuntal rhythm to what's going on, and at what point does it become a whole different sequence? And so there was a lot of that kind of listening and flipping back and forth. And I think, I think the thing that's interesting is that I think the, the way to do it is to approach in your own life how easily you switch gears. I mean, that's kind of my practice. I can easily get locked into one thing. So even if it's like I'm writing up a grocery list, but I have to go take the kitty litter out, uh, the glamorous life that I live. Um, I have to be able to switch quickly back and forth, or then have a conversation. And then learning how to do that, and learning what's possible, actually is something that I can put into practice when I write. Uh, but it's something I'm always wary of. You know, you can get lost in structure, and you can let get lost in creative impulse. and. I think, without a doubt, the, the literature that I admire most, the, 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 work, the pieces of art that I admire most, have both. You know, Da Vinci's Last Supper is, you know, is this incredible um, work of impulse as well as geometry. To so sort of, I guess, follow that up, when you come up with an idea, does it typically start with an idea of structure, an idea of story, or are they just so intrinsically linked they kind of happen at the same time. Well, I think I care about what <clears throat> the question was how are they always intrinsically linked the way the way the, the story and the structure or appear. You, uh, rather, you know, when you have an idea is when you're starting to write a book, do you start with the structure or do you start with the story or are the two so connected you kinda of have them both? Okay, so what comes first, story or the structure? Uh, I think one thing to be clear about, I, I mistrust the word story. You know, I think it's one of those words that, that is so common that people feel they understand what it is, very much like at a certain time of, you know, of our civilization, ether was understood, even the way people use soul and spirit, or even mind. You know, these, are, these are actually very vague terms. And the word story, I think, is constantly 
being reinvented, even though people use it in the same way. There are certain conventions that are part of the story. There are certain things that we expect to hear and we expect not to hear. And so whenever we, we talk about just like, oh, I wish there were more story, I immediately tune out. I, it's, that doesn't interest me. I mean, I think a story can be a set of numbers. I mean, there's a whole movement in, in academic theory right now about studying database narratives. Like, what what is the story of a phone book? There is a story there, you know? But partly what I do is I have to be an intermediary between commerce as well as thought. So there's a certain type of story that will never really move, you know, into the hands of readers if it's just a database narrative. Nevertheless, it is a valid form of story. So only revolutions. I knew it was going to be a road pic road picture. I knew it was going to be about two kids that were on the road and then I started to think about how I was going to tell it. Well, was it going to be an omniscient point of view? Well, that's an easy way of doing it. But that didn't seem true to sort of what I have been investigating, even with House of Leaves and, and the 50-Year Sword. And so then I started to think, well, I'm sort of against that world word view of an entirety. So I thought, okay, it's going to have to be his point of view or her point of view. And then I realized that I, I didn't want to preference one of them. So maybe they would be together. And so then immediately the question of structure starts coming up, right? Am I going to put them both on the same page? You know, how am I going to, to demonstrate where they are? And then as I began to explore the themes of that story of being 16, of feeling like you're going to be in love forever, you know, endless love, love that never dies, suddenly greater themes start to open up, you know, cycles of nature, flora, fauna, how are those going to be materialized in structure? And then eventually it came up with this sort of cyclical, you know, cycloidal poem, whatever, that developed. With the 50-year sword, I knew that it was, it was going to come from this perspective of older narr narrators, but that unlike the 50-year sword and only revolutions, these narr narrators would be nameless. Um, and that's an unsettling thing because we're so comforted to know that, oh, at least it's a Greek chorus or at least it's got a name, you know, but what happens when it's a colored quotation mark? We don't like that. And I've, I've, noticed, I've noticed something about that particular anxiety and I think it has to do with the fact that it's, it's something that we recognize in an unappealing way uh, as part of all our speech and all our our stories. So even as I'm talking now, even as you are asking me this question, could we not begin to parse apart our phrases and realize that some of them came from books that we learned, some of them came from, you know, our mother's tongue, our father's tongue, friends. How much of what we say is collectively our own or actually the many parts of sort of unknown voices that kind of have moved through our mind? And so our claim on the narrative is something that I knew that I wanted to question in the 50s your sword and and now so taking it a step even further away where in house of leaves you had Nav you had uh, zampano you had johnny truant you had pelafina in in only revolutions you had sam and haley now you're hit heading into five 
nameless, you know, narrators. So how how do I evoke who they are? How do I connect them to the orf orphans they once were? What kind of colors work for that scheme? And if it is a kind of a remediation of a sort of a campfire story, then how do I begin to present it in that way? So it's happening at the same time. Okay. If I may ask one other, uh, while you're writing, how much and do you really think about uh, sort of the reading and the reader's perspective while you're going through it? What is so being said without being said, I suppose? Uh, Not really. <laughs> I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, I you know, my my adage has always been never underestimate the reader. And, you know, I've been rewarded for that. You know, that's how I felt when I was writing House of Leaves. That's how I feel, felt when I was writing Only Revolutions. Same way with this book, and it'll be the same way for the next book. And, you know, sometimes it takes a while. You know, it's funny to sort of, you know, meet some people who've read, you know, he, they read House of Leaves like, you know, four years ago. I mean, the book came out. 12 years ago and sort of go like, yeah, man, I like this, but I really can't stand only revolutions, you know, it's just it's too much for me. And yet, that's what I was hearing about House of Leaves for two or three years when it came out. It was like, oh, I can't read this. This is impossible. No one can read this, you know? So it's like, well, you know, I mean, literature is the game of sort of, of long, low frequencies, of long bass notes that just keep rolling through culture. So uh, I, don't, I don't think you can really, you know, um, I, I think you honor, you honor the reader by trusting the intelligence of the reader. That's what I would say. In the back. What do you think of the House of Leaves being called postmodern? Question is, what do I think of House of Leaves being post, called postmodern? I think it's accurate to a certain point. I mean, I, I look at House of Leaves is a journeyman's piece. I mean, it's it's very much rooted in the postmodern authors that it 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 discusses, that it mentions, that its its modes are are very much in that way. You know, the labyrinth is a huge trope for postmodernism. Uh, I don't think anyone who calls only revolutions postmodern knows what postmodern is. You know, so I think for me that's that's where it, it becomes different. I think. I think uh, the 50-year sword, pointedly, to use a very important pun in the book, is not postmodern either. So I, I would say, though, that the that the garments of, of House of Leaves are, in fact, postmodern, even though it starts to gesture in different areas, you know. I mean, like, the long lists and everything are in some ways, you know, indicative of, like, the Homeric lists, you know, and then the sort of the lists of... Uh, you know, sort of Pinchonian descriptions of 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 London after V2 bombings, uh, and then at the same time, it's kind of formality is kind of even moving away from any sort of description, so that now it's becoming a database narrative. You know, which which begins to point towards a different kind of of writing that's out there that's facilitated by computers, facilitated by the kind of technology that wasn't available that could only have been sort of uh, uh, speculated about. And we will get to a reading, I promise. Yes. Um, regarding House of Leaves, you mentioned the labyrinth just a little bit ago. Um, was your writing of House of Leaves informed at all by Nietzsche's idea of the labyrinth? Uh, sure. I mean, Nietzsche was someone that I was reading in college, you know. Uh, but so was Borges, you know. And so was, uh, you know, the 
the myths of antiquity, you know, and so was sort of Jacques Derrida's, you know, discussion of the, you know, the the labyrinth of the inner ear and, and all of that, but also sort of the awareness of, of probably the emergent inter internet, you know, probably even even you know Ulysses and its in its sort of hypertext textuality in a way, even though that technology isn't actually applied to that book, it's so, you know. It so links to itself that, of course, that was part of it as well. Yes? Um, recently, in an interview, you talked about finishing a book, deciding when something is meant to be ended or concluded. What would you describe beginning a thought? Like, how do you decide when a thought is ready to be flushed out? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Just to sidestep the question for a second while I'm thinking about the question. You know, one of the questions I'm always asked is like, well, where do you look for inspiration? And I think the the truth is there's inspiration everywhere. It's constant. You know, if you open if you open up yourself to inspiration, everything is a possible good idea. And that gets back to your question. How do you suddenly recognize that this one is is it? I don't know, it chooses you, you know? It's like a cat that comes out of the rain and says, you're mine. <laughs> and you go, hey, whoa, 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 I don't need a cat. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going to live with you for the next 20 years. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't speak that meow stuff. Okay, I speak the scratch stuff. I don't know, yeah, it kind of saws on you. It scratches you. It kind of it stays around. And I think, you know, I think probably... I mean, for me, in some ways, it's easy because I'm committed to writing things that take a long, long time. So it's, do I really want to stay for 10 years on this? I mean, even this, which was started in 2003, was kind of one of those things that didn't quite let go. It was supposed to be done in 2005, and then, you know... Steve Erickson said, will you do a reading? And then people at the time were saying, hey, you know, it's too expensive on eBay. Can you just release it? And then I was like, okay, we'll go back to it, you know. And 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 yet in going back to it, it allowed me to finish, you know, the sort of the minute typesetting. I haven't really answered your question, though. Look for the cat, I think. You know, it is, like, how do you know you're in love? How do you know that this is this is where you'll go? It's It's profound, really, you know? I will say this, though. I've often joked that if I had, if I had um, decided to write a book about, you know, the, the U-boat wars in World War II, I still would have ended up writing only revolutions. Like, I rewrite so much that I sort of feel like even the book that I'm working on now, The Familiar, who knows, maybe when it releases in 2014, you'll look at it and you'll go, holy fuck, it's about a dog? You know, <laughs> it could happen, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be such a bummer of an answer. It's all about discipline. It's what Philip Roth said, you know, it's amateurs look for inspiration, professionals sit down and write. And I just, it's 
you know, I get up early, I go to the gym, maybe I pitter about when I'm having breakfast, but then I just sit down and I, and I write. And I think in some ways, it's not about actionable inspiration, because that's a control. That implies a certain sense of control over your inspiration. I, I think it's more profound than that. It's faith. It's faith that what you write at that moment, even if you don't feel like writing it, will amount to something. And I don't know where you get that. But I certainly have always felt that way. And um, and it's, it is interesting, because I remember writing parts of um, the Whalestow letters in House of Leaves, and I remember it was again a question of discipline. It was, I was sick at the time. I was like, had bad food poisoning, I think a bad cold. I was basically just couldn't even get out of bed. And I still grabbed a clipboard and a pencil, and I said, I'm gonna write two pages, and I don't care what it is. It didn't feel good at all. I didn't feel like I was talking to the gods on Mount Olympus, you know? And then I put them away and I forgot about them, you know? And then when I was retyping them, I didn't even think much about them. And then later, people were coming up to me saying, this is my favorite part. And that was a very valuable lesson because I realized the way I felt about my writing had nothing to do with how I was writing. That ultimately, it's about the craft. It's about reading. It's about the work that you do and the revisions that you do. And then ultimately, putting your faith in that craft. Uh, my father was a, um, uh, among many things, he was a he was an actor's coach. He was an actor's studio in the 50s. He eventually became the head of the theater program at USC. And he had a professional workshop. And he would work with actors of all levels, Academy Award winners, you know, on down. But I remember him t talking to some pretty astounding uh, actors after they just run through one scene. And he said, okay, are you high now? Good. Do you feel good about yourself? Great. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's get to to work because it's not about how you feel it's about how you know it's about what you're doing what the integrity of the work is about you know so I think that's also stuck with me too so it's about discipline are we done time for the reading the raffle <laughs> yes all right is there mumbling I heard mumbling I'm going to start on 52 if anyone has the book and wants to follow along. I'm going to read for a little while, so you can relax, get sleepy. Breath, gentleness, and gratitude, Chintana's twin typically counseled, must precede love. She was a yoga body meditating low-carb Tibet trekking cat lover and a butcher to boot. That's why, before any heart stuff, voice happily prick-stitching the shifting cellular connection, you first breathe and thank, and practice breathing and thanking, and gently, too, with every breath. Chintana had, had tried to practice, but just breathing required so much force, it was almost inconceivable to imagine gratitude, let alone gentleness. And anyway, gratitude for what or who? What about Belinda Kite? Belinda Kite. Belinda Kite. 
The idea rushed spouts of color to her face. That lavish creature of bleach and gold, proudly pedigreed in the bloodlines of Texas bullery, with a predatory, if cursatory, taste for minor men of all sports, usually not citizens neither, offering the poor minority the charity of her shape and touch offering them their reverie, who would as casually buy a Mercedes as dole out mercy every other year, her mercy last year in the back seat of her SUV with one of those boat people, a Thai flowerman married to a Thai seamstress, a tight, muddy man who could tenderly lift fields of wild lupine, blackberry lily, and lush evening primrose from the grieving earth. Neither Chintana nor the marriage could afford that kind of Mercedes or survive that kind of mercy. Pravat never had a chance. And the loss of some larger dream for him, some cultural intertwining, co-illusion, coupled with the betrayal, Belinda Kites in his own, left him too cut up inside, all so gutted and gutless after all, to carry on. And to have him? All Belinda had had to do was press into his cupped hands a frail bit of embroidery her own fingers had clumsily threaded and at points bled upon, barely managing with cruel white work and a forbidden stitch the smocking shade of a single harvester with dark orange wings. To leave him, though, and soon after, Belinda Kite was far more bloodless. A pasty, blue-eyed ex-officer -ex explaining in diligent tones how even stepping towards a doorbell could be read as trespassing and so punchable by the law. Chintana found out every disconcerting detail and even snip-snip undid, clip-clip, stitch-by-stitch the offending thief, intoxicant, spell-casting lore. Because Chintana had been the only one Pravat knew well enough to confess his torture to. When he left in April, flights of green-backed herons shrieking in his brow told her what he'd already made of his wife. But the falling egret on his lips also told her he had finally stopped bleeding inside. He could smile vaguely again, limply clap her hands with his two riverbed hands, nodding gratefully only because like the desiccated rose of his flowers and tears, Black cratches, all of it now, mere shadows on the gray. He too, like a passing day, was already gone. The social worker had mentioned other young'uns. But that night, Chintana saw no sign of any more. Maybe the increasing cold, or the peculiar threat of a storm, or Belinda Kite's birthday, had turned parents from wrestling with seat belts and car seats from those oh-so-many lists of babysitters tacked conveniently by a phone. Chintana rubbed the violet line on her thumb as a woman with topaz clamped on her ears burst past her towards a small bathroom tucked under the main stairs. Such a hateful whore, the woman sput-stutter sobbed to Chintana, to no one in particular, diving for the comforts of lock and running water. Whereupon Chintana's thumb abruptly began to soar a little, and she felt bleak, as if a thousand vengeances upon vengeances were dicing her suddenly into hail. Though the cause was none too mysterious, the front door just stood wide open, though when it had been flung so, Chintana would never remember. The 
porch lights were extinguished too, oddly. And what's more, a shadow now cut across the threshold, though without moon or stars in the Texas sky, this was an awful impossibility. For here, reaching towards her, it seemed, was a shadow cast by nothing other than the darkness itself. Most would have denied the sight with a turn, a cry, flight. But maybe because Chintana too, day out and night in, could so easily consider doing the same, what would leave these rooms drenched in silence and blood, she welcomed him. The orphans was all he said, and Chintana showed him the way. At first, the five orphans, five jittery swamp rabbits, five know-some-better gophers recoiled at the sight of the storyteller. It didn't help that the library had not suited his taste, so his hulking form, bent and growling, had led them up a tight wind of back stairs into a small parlor already dimly lit with five season-poured candles of ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and molasses. Clustered in an uneven arc away from five dark windows, all tightly closed. Surely Moses' work. Only when he finally sat down on the floor did the orphan seem to relax, enchanted quick enough by the manner of his diminishing. So crossing his legs, folding himself into himself, refolding until right before their eyes, he no longer seemed crowling or gulking, but sat quiet still overdraped in his strange silvery black tunic, his head heavily bowed. Following this example, Tarf, Izaid, Anidia, Sithis, and Mickit sat down too, crossing their legs, and if not exactly little and bushy blue stem cozy, then armadillo tight, wanting now only to know what was inside. As for the social worker, with her burden of watchful responsibility, responsibility momentarily suspended, she took her place in a back corner lounge chair and stretching out her legs, yawned. Chintana as well succumbed to her own shadows and seat, trying idly to figure out this figure's peculiar origins, the narrow eyes or sharp squeezed brows, the profoundly wide forehead, or the dark lips rounding out into the deeper creases of his cheek all mute and formless, but somehow adding up to something Chintana knew only as awfully. Or perhaps it wasn't him at all, but another question of origin, the box he carried. A narrow thing with angles of black, six feet long, easy, with an ochre sh sash for a handle above the odd engraving, T50YS. The four hinges faced in towards him, the five metal latches faced out towards the orphans. The number of latches confused her and warned her, but Chintana didn't know what to do with warnings anymore. What I have to tell you, he began slowly, I must show you. But what I show you, I must also tell you. I have only myself and where I've been and what I found and what I now bring and it will frighten you. This was not the way such tales for five such orphans usually began. Mickett cocked her head to one side and his aide's hands fussed in his pocket. Well, maybe there would still be some fun, Chintana mussied. Maybe the storyteller's strange and pompous gravity would be refused with fitterings and frowns. 
Yet if the cloudy phrases release them, his ever so slight nod towards the box recaptured them. All I have to offer is right here to see, but if you scare easily, you should leave. Tarf looked at Azade, who looked at Anidia, who looked at Sithis, who looked at Mickett, who defiantly looked back at the dark man and his long box with angles of black, and so they all stayed. I am a bad man with a very black heart, and it was only that badness and blackness which forced me to seek out what I have carried now for many years and brought this night for you. Because you were young, I will tell you I went in search of a weapon. But also because you were young, I will not tell you I went in search of such a weapon. Though in truth, while I could speculate, I am no longer capable of recalling the details myself. When you are older, you will be able to imagine what drove me on such a quest. You will know then more than me. But saying this, he did not look at the orphans, only at Chintana. And maybe it was a coincidence, but her thumb began to hurt a little more. At first I went to places I knew, familiar places. I examined ropes and knives of many sorts. I considered oils and poisons. I toyed with explosives. I handled guns, small guns, big guns, guns powerful enough to sever something, anything in half with just one blast. Chintana shifted uncomfortably. Where were the animals, the gleefully abandoned, or the stormy skies appropriate for the, a ghost story for the young? Where was the comedy? The social worker, however, seemed unconcerned. That, or too exhausted to resist the comforts of her recliner. But none of it, the storyteller continued, could match my taste for what my blackness ceaselessly scratched for. And so I traveled farther and farther away, from north to south, mountain to valley, coast to coast, season by season, until finally I left the country on a ship, setting out for away in far places where faces are different and songs cradle words neither you nor I have ever heard. And everywhere I stopped, everywhere I ate or drank or slept, I asked about a weapon. Yet even in those distant places, I received the same response. Ropes, knives, poisons, explosives, and guns. I shook my head and my heart blackened more, and my badness spread so that whatever I touched, my badness touched too, and seeped into. Until finally, one night on the banks of a muddy flow, what some might call a stream, on the edge of another dirty city, I took cover from a rain beneath slabs of concrete twisted through with rusted rebar and pain. It was a shelter I soon discovered already populated by rats, but where I also overheard a story about a valley assault and a forest of note, and a mountain of any one paths, and a man with no harms who made terrible weapons, which he sold, but never for money. Intrigued, I asked for a retelling of the story. Carefully then I listened, memorizing every detail, prodding him to reveal still more, until I was satisfied he knew no more, and then I thanked him, and I killed him. 
Chintana jerked forward sharply, trying in vain to grab hold again of the words so casually uttered, so easily laid open, laid bare, unable to believe he'd said them in the first place, even if a Zaid and an idea did whimper, and Mickett's head bent down, her eyes suddenly fixed absiderly on the worn, crimp-stitched carpet. If only the social worker had given just one indication of alarm, Chintana would have put a stop to the whole thing. But blinks, too, of disbelief, enforced probably by her own torpidador, could merely put both women on a temporary state of alert. Only his eyes, gray pools of glum lake ice, told Chintana what he had just succeeded in doing. He had involved them, and what's more, had now made them accountable. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.